As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Bob Miller, head of America's fundamental fixed income, truly with decades of experience, Bob Miller, what is the symbolism if the Lehman Barclays Bloomberg total return aggregate index breaks down to new lower price and higher yield? How do you redefine the bear market if we get that technical breakdown? Well, good morning, Tom. I hope all of you are well. It's good to be with you. Um, Look, I, 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 we, we think that yields are now reasonable. Uh, so yes, they can, you know, prices can go down and yields can go higher from here. But, but we're in the range of reasonable. Fixed income offers you know, some, some reasonably attractive opportunities today after, uh, for the first time since 2018, um, and, and certainly after the period of, of no opportunity two years ago and, and a year ago. So you can build a high quality portfolio that has a four to five percent yield, including treasuries, you know, high quality credit, even high quality, add some high quality high yield in the eight and a half to nine percent range. You can build a pretty attractive portfolio for, for the first time in years, and specifically in U.S. fixed income. And, and we think that that's, uh, that's something that investors ought to be thinking about for the next year. No doubt things have been ugly this year, and, and there's no near-term relief in sight but valuations matter, and, and these valuations look, look reasonable to us. They look reasonable compared perhaps to a year ago. They won't necessarily look as reasonable in a year if 10-year Treasury yields are 5%, where some people are suggesting they could be. Are you in the camp that says that we have seen peak yields on 10-year or that we're close to it, even as we do see them start to climb and push up against and test some of the highs that we've seen of the cycle? Yeah, at least I don't know if we've seen the peak, but... But I think we're close, meaning because we're in the camp that inflation is going to decelerate, growth is going to decelerate. I think it's a it's 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 really important to keep in mind the magnitude of the financial conditions tightening that the Fed has engineered in just six months' time. They're going to raise rates by another 75, most likely in in less than two weeks' time, pushing the funds rate to three. That's in a six-month period of time, 300 basis points off zero. 600 basis points annualized, right? This is, this is not an insignificant 
move. It's a, it's a meaningful move, and, and it takes time, right? The, the famous long and variable lags. It takes time for policy adjustments, easing and tightening, to work their way through all of the cracks in the economy. It's coming. I think it'll be, it'll be very unlikely that we, we look up in three to six months' time and growth and inflation haven't slowed by a sufficient amount that the Fed is probably able to pause with rates around 4%. And just sit there for a while. So, in order to get a five percent ten-year on a one-year horizon, wow. a lot of things have to go wrong, right? I just, uh, just may, maybe it could be, but but a lot of things already have gone wrong, and I think it's it's a little dangerous to extrapolate the last nine months into the next nine months without considering what's happening to financial conditions in the U.S. economy. They are tighter. <clears throat> Yeah, although you do still see the consumer having some strength, particularly with oil prices or at least gasoline prices coming down a bit. Have we fully taken into account the fact that Europe has also moved away from negative yielding regime with the biggest ever rate hike at the, at the ECB meeting last week and is poised to do more, that there is a cohesive and global synchronized rate hiking cycle that we really haven't seen in modern history? Yeah, it's a great point. And, and it would, I, I would argue that that adds to the the reality of financial conditions tightening in a lot of different places, not just the United States. And that will ultimately have a delayed, but, a, but likely a real impact on growth and inflation over the next year or two. Keep in mind, there's one central bank that, that isn't participating that we think will, will likely be forced to by their own inflation dynamics in Japan sometime over the next six to nine months. We wouldn't be at all surprised to see the yield curve control um, program that's been in place for some time, um, at a minimum adjusted slightly, if not adjusted by you know, a, a reasonable amount. Hey, Bob, we've got to pick up on that. Final question. What does that mean? And how would the rest of the global bond market respond to a move like that? Yeah, so Jonathan, great question. That, that, that's where, like, if you asked me, what's the scenario where the question Lisa mentioned about a 5% Treasury yield, what, what's, the, what's the scenario where that's a reality? It's either, it's either just unbelievably persistently high inflation um, that the Fed cannot get under control, so the front end is likely at five, if not higher, or it's some resumption of global term premium by the, you know, the ECB not only, not only um, turning off QE, but perhaps even pursuing some balance sheet runoff, and importantly, the Bank of Japan abandoning yield curve control. I think all of that, each one of those is individually pretty, pretty low odds, but, but that is the scenario where if you want to get really bearish on bonds, I think you've got to have something like that in mind. Hey, Bob, thank you. Bob Miller there of BlackRock. Katie Kaminsky joins now. It's been a joy to speak to her chief research strategist at Alpha Simplex about trend, because she, off of Andrew Lowe at MIT, is a slave to trend, is full disclosure, I am too. Katie, what is the trend now, and is the trend different than what we saw in the last two weeks of June? Yes, I mean, I think we've seen the short bond signals as well as long um, long positioning in dollar be very dominant recently. But in the last two weeks, we've really seen an influx of risk on behavior, a lot of buying pressure, particularly in the equity sector. And this is somewhat of an indication that people are getting optimistic. They're ready to put money back in the market. But the question is going to be, is it too early? 
That's the question that City's asking. This is what Andrew Hollenhorst and the team had to say this morning. They published just moments ago. I'll read through it. Despite the pricing in of hikes, risk on prevails. The message at Jackson Hole was clear. The Fed will lean against looser financial conditions until inflation has convincingly slowed. The team over at City go on to say, meaning the Fed will be incentivised to push against the nascent risk rally. Do you agree with that, Katie? I do agree with it, but I also think it could take longer than people expect. And the fact that the Fed is remaining steady is they're setting a signal that they're thinking a little differently than the market. And I think we've been the most surprised to see that the market is more optimistic than Fed commentary. And that suggests that there's perhaps maybe a little bit more that we need to think about going forward and that we might see a little bit of reversion. We'll see what the CPI looks like today. But, you know, you're going to have to see how winter unfolds and how we handle some of these energy issues and other problems. Uh, We haven't even really seen QT yet. So I think it's going to take time to know, but I'm a little bit less optimistic than the market. And Katie, John was talking earlier about how we should just interview meteorologists all day. And that might be as good as interviewing prognosticators on the market, because that might be what determines the market. So what is the bond response? What is the stock response to a a, a really cold winter, one in which the energy shortfall becomes more acute? I mean, this is a serious issue because if you see people dealing with higher interest rates in terms of their payments, and you're also seeing people dealing with higher costs, it could really be a difficult situation, particularly for Europe. Um, And so I think people really need to think about looking at those prices as we roll into the winter season. We're just now starting to move towards December contracts and farther out in the curve. So I do agree with John that, you know, it's really going to depend on how we weather uh, the winter. as, as the price pressure is real. Katie, we're speaking with you after you got a 38% gain in Alpha Simplex's main fund as a result of selling short bonds, something that hasn't worked for years. At what point do you double down on that short position at a time where you think the market's getting it wrong and underestimating the Fed's resolve? So I think one thing to know about trend following is what we do is follow trends. And the truth is that the market, particularly in really difficult environments, is often a better bastion of information than one individual or any one particular view. And so what we've seen now, which is kind of why I'm saying it's surprising, is that short bond trends are still there. That positioning is still very strong in the data. And we could definitely see, even though rates are reasonable, them becoming more unreasonable in the short term. Can you correlate short bond, bond price down, yield up into an equity bet on trend? Yes. I mean, as once we see that things have leveled out, I think I've always said that this isn't an equity story. It's a bond story. So once we see that bonds have stabilized and we have a much more healthy curve and more of a risk premium out in the curve, so we see much more of a steeper curve, I would think that that's really sort of a risk on signal that we can all start to think about those premiums as opposed to the potential destruction of rate rises. Because we all forget, even though it's better going forward, the bonds we own now really take a hit. And we all felt that this year. Katie, let's go mathy here. We're doing this on a Monday. We can go math Monday here as well. Is the disinversion of the curve important or is it the first derivative rate of change of said disinversion? 
For me, it's much more the inversion of the curve that's going to matter. I mean, that tells us something about the disparity between what we're thinking about short-term rates and long-term rates. And if you look empirically at signals in terms of trend and direction of bonds, you see that bonds have tended to fall when the curve is more inverted. And thus, if we continue to see that inversion signal, we're going to see that there's some sort of bearish view on bonds until we can kind of see that longer-term risk premium, that steep um, really be an issue. So I'd say first derivative. <laughs> Kelly Kaminsky, thank you. Over at Alpha Simplex on the latest in the bond market. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Right now, we turn to Ukraine. It's been an absolutely unique weekend of infantry movement, which means only we can speak with General Hodges. Ben Hodges is a former commanding general for U.S. Army Europe. He is a Pershing chair in strategic studies at SEPA. But so importantly, Ben Hodges, I'm going to go back to you doing what you do best. You were an instructor at the United States Army Infantry School. When you instruct infantry... And particularly if they're Ukraines going after rapidly retreating Russians, what should they do? Uh, Three things. Number one, do not let up the pressure. Do not give the Russians a chance to stop and and turn around and and fight. So that's number one. Uh, Number two, uh, keep using your combined arms. In other words, infantry, tanks, artillery, engineers, all of these things working together. That's what Ukraine is doing so well and that the Russians have not done well. And then finally, uh, unleash uh, Ukrainian air power. Um, Even though the Russians had all the advantages, they've never been able to dominate the airspace over Ukraine. And I think the Ukrainians are going to try to take advantage of that. This conversation reminds me of one U.S. grant, an unknown, going down the Mississippi River and teaching uh, the North how to prosecute a full-force invasion. What do we need from the Ukrainians now to be like Grant in our civil war? Is it simply they need more material? Well, for sure, uh, they have the same sort of strategic eye as General Grant did. This is about you have to crush your enemy. And, and that's that's from President Zelensky on down. He said this thing started with Crimea and it's going to end with Crimea. And so uh, what they do need from us, of course, two things. One, they need continued delivery of the type of weapons and ammunition that are helping them 
make the difference to destroy Russian logistics, destroy Russian command and control, but also the uh, the sanctions. The, the sanctions really are having an effect on Russia's ability, both uh, in terms of their own defense industry, uh, but also domestically. I think more and more Russian people are beginning to feel this war that Putin was trying to shield from them. Well, Lieutenant General, that's where I wanted to go, because there is some discussion about the possibility of conscription. If Vladimir Putin does not want to come to the table, does not want to come to some sort of resolution, if he is running out of troops, as the reports have uh, suggested, what is Vladimir's, uh, Vladimir Putin's response to this? How concerned are you about some retaliatory measure that we're perhaps not expecting? Well, uh, you're right that they have a very serious manpower problem uh, in the Russian military, which is not doesn't sound like what I would have said uh, a year ago. Uh, most of their recruits now, many of them are conscripts, come from uh, way outside of Moscow and St. Petersburg. The, the Kremlin has tried to avoid uh, drafting anybody from the two major metropolitan areas because, again, they want to shield the public from what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, that nobody wants to fight. Uh, nobody wants to get involved in this war. They know what's going to happen if they do get sent into Ukraine. So uh, I think part of the reason President Putin has avoided uh, doing this general mobilization is because he wants to preserve the fairy tale, but also they'll be humiliated. People will not show up. They don't have the equipment to, to equip. They don't have the uniforms and weapons to equip another 100,000 troops. And it would still be months before they would yeah. be effective in any way. So, Lieutenant General, how does this end? And does it reassert Russia as a member of the global economy or does it leave it incredibly isolated? I think it's going to be a long time before we can look at Russia and, and work with them as if things are quasi normal. Um uh, this will end, I believe, uh, early next year. Uh, the, the Ukrainians are going to push the Russians back to the 23 February line before the end of this year, I believe. Of course, I could be proven wrong here in another month or two, but that's how I think that's going to happen. And then Crimea, uh, probably early sometime next year, a combination of fighting and, and perhaps some negotiated uh, conclusion. But the Ukrainians are not going to stop, nor should they stop. What does Russia look like when this is over? Of course, I cannot for sure what kind of friction and things are happening inside the Kremlin. Uh, We're all seeing various reports of, of things that are happening there, a lot of uh, finger pointing and people may start falling out of windows again. I mean, it's going to be a pretty rough scene around Moscow, I think, for the next uh, few months. General, thank you. We appreciate your time today, <clears throat> sir. Ben Hodges there, the former commanding general for the U.S. Army. Shumalek now joins us for an important briefing. Why is this important? He is one of the great students of continental economics. It matters for America right now with the trading relationships that we have. Gilles, what is the distinctive uncertainty you have in the fourth quarter? You are covering, on a global basis, but you are covering for Europe a continent in war. What is the distinctive uncertainty you face in the fourth quarter? Well... 
you know, Q3, we still had some you know, support from the fact that we reopened our economy a bit later than the US. So, for instance, we had really nice spending on tourism, recreational activities, and so forth. That goes away in, in Q4. And we have this major uncertainty on the price of gas and beyond the price of gas, the availability of gas. So, at this juncture, uh, we're still waiting for the details of the EU policy on, on, on the possibility of, of gas rationing and how the electricity market can be can be reformed um, and we need to to know whether or not there will need to be some actual rationing of, of gas of mm -hmm. energy in general uh, this winter because we, this could have a drastic impact on GDP if you forced to stop production in a right. number of uh, energy you know, uh, spending companies you will have a direct impact on GDP. The backdrop here as well over the weekend is electoral tumult in Canada, certainly the election in Sweden, and a, a coming election of some form in Italy as well. Give us the political backdrop as it folds into 2023 and a Europe in recession. Well, Italy is, is important, obviously, because... Um, uh, all the polls are saying that uh, you know, the uh, Fratelli d'Italia uh, is probably going to to win in coalition with with Lega and uh, and Forza Italia, uh, and there are uh, questions obviously as to their approach to uh, the uh, commitments of Italy towards towards Europe. To be fair, uh, Giorgia Meloni, the leader of, of Fratelli d'Italia, has mellowed a lot on her anti-European rhetorics. So the market is probably you know uh, already. To, to give some, some leeway to uh, a new government in, in Italy in September. But more generally, um, if you look beyond the elections per se, what we've had so far is a willingness by governments across Europe to accommodate uh, the shock from rising energy prices. Um, with rising interest rates, it's going to be increasingly problematic for these governments to maintain this kind of, of, of fiscal policy. And obviously, this could lead to uh, some you know, uh, political trouble down the road. So we are in sort of a tipping point. For now, governments in general have been able to uh, mitigate a lot of the raw impact of the rise in gas prices that may become more complicated as we get into 2030. 2023, sorry. Gilles, I want to double down on this a little bit because we are here in London as this sort of sea change happens on multiple prongs, whether it's the loss of the Queen, who's reigned for 70 years, or whether it's the loss of negative yields, which had been the base case for more than a decade, or whether it's this energy crisis. And the point that you just made is incredibly important that governments have not realized that the more the ECB hikes rates, the more unable they will be to plug the pain for a lot of the residents. What are you looking at in terms of translating into GDP growth in the euro region as a response to exactly that dynamic that something has to give here? Yes, I mean, basically what's happening is that uh, we are mitigating the current shock. I mean, you can see that everywhere in Europe, including now in the UK, which was hesitant actually as to whether they would mitigate the shock. They are. They are going to cap energy prices. So the depth of the recession, which is looming right now, is probably going to end up shallower than what we could have feared just a few months ago. But at the same time, what we're doing is that uh, we are uh, obviously increasing public deficits, increasing public debt. So at some point, and we don't know exactly when, but probably uh, in 2023 or in 2024 at, at the latest, there will need to be some efforts on uh, 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 
on fiscal policy, this will probably have a dampening impact on, on, on domestic demand. So in a way, we are uh, uh, um, just changing the timing of, of the pain. And it makes sense. I mean, we need to deal with the current energy crisis right now. But this will come at a price, and the price is likely to be some measure of austerity in 2020, in 2023, or you know, again, at the latest in 2024. There were reports over the weekend, Gilles, of uh, manufacturers in Germany, industrial companies closing down uh, their plants at different times or early, curtailing some of the activity in response to the energy concerns, the energy cost. How much is that going to really affect the reshoring, the desire to try to avoid the interest rate hit and the uh, currency hit that a lot of nations have been feeling? No, I mean it's 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 a it's a big issue for for Germany because um, the industrial uh, specialization of, of Germany make them very sensitive to the price of energy beyond the fact that they've made themselves reliant on, on Russian gas. Uh, the very fabric of German industry is quite uh, uh, energy energy intensive. So there are questions actually as to how this model could continue of maintaining on German territory those uh, uh, energy intensive intensive companies. Um, it's not the first time that we have questions as to uh, the German industrial uh, model there reliance on, on exports this question is becoming even more crucial uh, today so uh, what's what's helping germany obviously is that they have massive mm-hmm. uh, policy space they don't have you know much of uh, upper public debt they can actually take time to you know uh, 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 rejig the way their economy is specialized at the moment but yeah there right. are questions specifically to germany at the moment to borrow from ian bremer What is the power of Brussels now, the force of Brussels right now, or is it every nation for itself? Actually, for for standing, I would say that the level of solidarity that has been achieved in Europe in the face of this crisis is is quite high. I mean, you have, uh, for instance, this principle of European solidarity on gas. It was not obvious, and it has been actually uh, confirmed. Uh, The French president said publicly uh, in a TV address uh, that France, uh, the the winter, would actually uh, help Germany with the gas supply uh, this winter. So, actually, there's quite a bit of uh, solidarity. One of the issues we have, however, is that there's uh, an issue in terms of of, of leadership. Uh, Mario Draghi is no longer going to be Prime Minister of Italy. He was playing a big role in shaking things up, if you want, at the European level. Uh, The Chancellor of Germany um, is under massive domestic pressure, probably doesn't have that much time and energy uh, to devote to European matters. And obviously, uh, Emmanuel Macron is not in the same leading position in which he was before uh, the uh, the planetary election. So there is a little bit of of a hesitancy, if you want, uh, in terms of leadership. But at least for the time being, solidarity is continuing. Um, it's, there's not a lot of signs, actually, that it's, it's every country for itself. We have a few issues with some Eastern countries, Hungary, uh, as, as usual. But by and large, you know, the system holds. Gilles Mawak of AXA Investment Manager. Gilles, great to catch up with you, sir. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations 
and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.